Welcome to the Discourse Magazine podcast. This is David Mashi, Senior Managing Editor of Discourse, a new online journal of politics, economics, and culture published by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. In this episode, the Mercatus Center's Executive Director, Dan Rothschild, sat down with Arnold Kling and Martin Gurry to discuss the post-truth phenomenon, how a collapse of trust in established institutions has led to a world of competing truths. The audio, as well as the transcript of this conversation between Rothschild, Kling, and Gurry, has been slightly edited for clarity. Welcome, everyone. Uh, I'm pleased to be here moderating a discussion on the question of social epistemology and what some people are calling our post-truth age with people who are uh, uniquely qualified to talk about it. Uh, Martin Gurry is a veteran CIA analyst, a visiting fellow at the Mercatus Center, uh, and a George Mason University alum, I, uh, I want to be sure to add. Uh, Martin's also the author of a recent piece uh, on uh, the Mercatus to cite the bridge, The Way Out of Post-Truth. And he'll be having a conversation with Arnold Kling, a senior affiliated scholar at the Mercatus Center, an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, uh, and the author of uh, most recently, The Three Languages of Politics, which is now, I believe, on its third edition. Martin, why don't we go ahead and kick it off with you? Can you talk about um, what it means to be in a post-truth society? There's a lot to unpack in that term, so let's dive right in. Yeah, the term itself is an old phrase that was resurrected in uh, 2016, essentially by uh, the intellectual and political elites to explain what on earth happened in Brexit and uh, with Donald Trump. Uh, which, of course, for them was a, a tremendous disaster that needed to be explained. Post-truth began first in Britain. Always the, the concept has had kind of an English accent to it. Um, uh, it was a, a way of saying, well, these events could not have happened without reality having been warped in some way between the candidates and, and the electorates. That is not the way I, I use the phrase at all. I, I think that's a perfectly acceptable if you want to, you want to say that. Um, but I believe that um, it, it all goes back to the, the terrible question by Pontius Pilate, what is truth, right? And we, we tend to think uh, in terms of, well, truth is uh, accumulation of facts that are gathered by scientists and experts and they're going to pile up into a heap somewhere that we all agree to. That's just not the way the world works. Truth uh, is a function of trust and pertains to the authority of, of, of the source. So if tomorrow we came to think of, of scientists, for example, as being uh, crackpots, then their pronouncements would have no more resonance than the TV commercial. Now, we live in an era of, of zero trust. All our great institutions have essentially lost the trust of the public for various reasons that I explained in, in the revolt of the public. An era of zero trust, it, 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 it's an era of, it's a crisis of authority, is bound to be a crisis of uncertainty. And I think my definition of post-truth is um, essentially a, an endless number of perspectives. I, think, I believe Reality hasn't changed. I don't believe it's constructed. I don't believe it's, it's soft and, and malleable. It's hard. If, if you, if you uh, get run over by a truck, it, it hurts. Um, but um, perspectives, and pers particularly in mediated reality, uh, are, are infinite. They're, they're, they're fragmented. Uh, and there isn't a trusted authority in the room to settle the matter. Forever and a day, the elites in their institutions performed, that was probably their most important function, to interpret the world for us. But we don't trust that anymore. And I think um, uh, a symptom of that is that we don't really argue to persuade, we hardly even argue content, substance anymore. We argue to dominate. Our facts should dominate and your facts should be annihilated. And I mean, I would just throw out there, I mean, Literally, I think a couple of days after I wrote that piece for, for The Bridge, um, there was this fuss with Trump being fact-checked uh, by Twitter. And I thought, okay, if I were to take a case study of what post-truth means to me, it, this would be it. He posts, he gets fact-checked. Zuckerberg, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, the, the, the head of, of, uh, of Facebook, says, we should not be the arbiters of truth. Elizabeth Warren jumps in and says, Mark Zuckerberg in this hate spewing uh, 
place, Fox News, has come out and said presidents are allowed to lie. Uh, meanwhile, Trump is passing this executive order saying, well, you people can either be uh, heads of edited content or you can be neutral platforms, but you can't be both. So what Trump said in that original tweet, you can ask 99 people out of 100, they have forgotten that. They, his, and actually it was a valid point. I mean, it was stated in normal Trumpian way with extreme words and so forth, but it was a question of the validity of uh, mail-in votes. Everybody forgot about that. That was a legitimate question to be discussed. We're now fighting my facts versus your facts. So um, there's a lot to unpack there. I'd like to go back to this terminology, post-truth, because that's, that's a loaded term and people could get into a lot of uh, difficulties over it. Let me, let me throw out three types of truth. There's God's truth, like what you call reality, right? Um, there's private truths, like what people believe in their own heart. And then there's social truth, which is this truth that everybody accepts from authority. Um, so an example would be that, you know, the fable, the emperor's new clothes. Uh, so God's truth is the emperor's naked. Uh, the private truths that people have, if people who are looking at it would say, well, I guess, you know, he's naked. But the social truth is that he's got this wonderful set of clothes because the New York Times is saying he's got a wonderful set of clothes and everyone uh, accepts that authority. Um, and I think what you mean by post-truth is that the social truth has broken down. There is no authority, and so we're left with these private truths. And unlike the case of the emperor's new clothes, the private truths, there can't be grounded in reality. That, that's, that's a notion called naive realism, when you believe that what you believe is, is, the, is absolute reality, because um, nobody has that kind of God's perspective. Uh, so you have these private truths, and that, that and they're fractured, as you say. So it's like a, a war, you know, Hobbesian war of all against against all. Uh, David Weinberger has this phrase that, you know, for every fact there is an equal and opposite fact, and uh, we're in that fractured world. So, so that's to me what post-truth means is that we've lost the social truth of authorities. And I think that's happened before. I mean, you had, uh, you know, many, you know, hundreds of years ago, the religious authorities sort of were created social truth. And then, uh, and then kind of, the, you know, scientists broke in and, and broke that down. And now, um, you know, we've, we've, we've gone through this period where the journalists and the political leaders and other elites and academic elites gave us the social truth. And I think what you're saying now is that they've, for whatever reason, lost their authority. And uh, so we've just got these different private truths out there competing. Yeah. Um, actually, I think the, um, the comparison with um, the decline of religion and the rise of science is perfect. That's a perfect example. I think uh, that's been, um, describe at times as being a disenchantment, right? We don't, we don't see an enchanted world anymore. There aren't any um, fairies in the, in, the, in the woodlands and, and there aren't any spirits that, that we can appeal to. Um, and I think that is exactly what's happened many, many centuries later to um, essentially that, that 20th century industrial system of, of uh, institutions and government. Um, there has been a profound disenchantment for the same reasons is that some of the things that were being claimed, many of the important claims that uh, the systems made were found to be not so. And the flip side of that, again, from, from what you were saying, which is, I think, uh, really kind of uh, the, the mode most of us seem to be in today is that fracturing and that, that private truth you're talking about. Uh, we we seem to be getting deeper and deeper into a very subjectivized um, perception of what truth should be uh, that sometimes described as an information bubble, but that's false because that assumes that you are in a bubble, but somebody somehow knows the truth, right? So you are escaping from some gigantic truth by being in your bubble. There is 
no truth out there. We're all kind of uh, retreating into ourselves. And um, I mean, that when, when you look at, um, you know, to talk about some terrible people, you're random shooters, people who pick up uh, a gun and start killing other strangers, innocent strangers for no particular reason. And you read their their uh, manifestos and so forth. You realize that they live. First of all, they're heroes to themselves. They are the most virtuous people to themselves that exist. They have no conscience about what they're doing, whatever. And that's true because the facts that they seem to be living in are so deeply subjective. They're so deep inside their own minds that the fact that they're murdering people that doesn't even penetrate. So this this is more than just politics. I think it's a it's a social pathology. I mean, there there are there are. Uh, associated pathologies of, of our society with the fact that the elites who are supposed to be providing an authority for us to you know explain reality in terms that the rest of us can understand and, and those of us who are old enough and that would be me uh, can remember when in the 20th century uh, you would read the experts and they would explain things and so forth and then you would you would agree or disagree but there it was when that disappears um, Anything is possible. I mean, anything, a great deal of nihilism can, can uh, go through that open door. I think a lot of people are inclined to just blame the um, sort of the dissidents for this. That, you know, if we didn't have cable and Fox News and uh, crazy websites, and we could go back to the New York Times. You know, if everyone would just accept the New York Times, it, it would take care of itself. But I think you and I both agree we're probably not going back to that. And if anything, that looks less appealing now than it might have 40 years ago because of a real deterioration in the traditional authorities' uh, abilities. And one thing that, that struck me, I was rereading uh, Joseph Henrich, uh, The Secret of Our Success. It's about how important culture is to us. You know, you and I as individuals, you know, come into the world knowing nothing about how to navigate our complex world. And we, uh, we learn from other people from culture. And that in turn uh, means we have to respect the prestige of authorities, uh, teachers and, uh, and scientists and so on. Um, but he also points out that the systems that create authority have a tendency to just break down over time, that people learn to game the system rather than uh, achieving through merit. So if you can imagine, you know, 50, you know, 30 years ago to become a, you know, a leading professor or 50 years ago, uh, you had to really show that you could un attack the important problems uh, in your field. Now you just game the system of getting research grants and you kind of suck up to the right people and you become, you know, you, you can become a, a leading professor. Um, and you can sort of see, you know, the same thing in journalism. Journalism used to have to uh, work really hard to get a story. I mean, there was a lot of shoe leather reporting. Now you get the impression that people just kind of sit back in their uh, in their office with their journalism degree and pontificate, and they haven't really uh, done the on the ground work to produce a story. So there's. So there's this question of whether the institutions that create these authorities or that that uh, the, the the prestige hierarchies aren't working as well as they used to. So let me let me throw out a few scenarios for the future, and we can talk about whether this is a near-term or long-term future. One one is that we remain fractured, and I. Can't, it's hard to imagine what that looks like. Another one is that sort of the institu current institutions kind of recover and reform uh, and they get their authority back. And the third scenario would be completely new institutions and new sets of authority, kind of the way it transferred from, you know, priests to scientists. So you want to comment on those scenarios and which ones you think 
you would want to see or we're likely to see? Yeah, want is one thing. Um, I, I have no idea. I mean, when you look at analysis of of system breaks, when when um, uh, system analysts look at the transformation of systems, uh, when their constraints are are essentially removed, which that, that create the systems, um, you have this moment of disorganization, which is where we are right now. Um, and when you look at what ultimately happens you can go one or two ways. You can reorganize under different principles at the other end of this process, or you can, you can just remain disorganized forever. The Roman empire after a certain point, you know, never got its act back together much as everybody wanted it to. It, it just stopped being uh, a thing. So um, I think, I think we can't go back. I mean, I, I have, I have trouble seeing how that would be possible. I think we can be forced. You can impose some sort of lead on, on information and pretend that you now have authority by say mandating um, that uh, social media has to say certain things or, or kind of like what they've done, for example, with the, with the pandemic. You can take that one and that model where you, you are forced or, or basically they, out of responsibility, decided that whenever questions were being asked about uh, um, the virus, they would link to a, a, an authoritative institution like the CDC or the WHO both of which, by the way, futz around during the crisis tremendously, but have the authority of being an institution. So what's to stop uh, you know, government from saying, well, when we talk about politics, now you have to come to the federal government for the answer to that particular question because we're the authoritative uh, source for, for that particular reality. I don't think it's gonna happen, uh, but if you did that, all you would create would be a, a false reality uh, on top and a gigantic, uh, resentment at the bottom that would sooner or later explode. Yeah, you know, let me am- amplify that for a second. That what you're doing is you're replacing what was a prestige hierarchy, where people said, "Wow, these journalists have prestige, and these academics have prestige, and, and these leaders are legitimate," with a dominance hierarchy, and that has the opposite effect of undermining people's prestige when they when they engage in dominant behavior. So that's your that's one scenario. What about what about the the reform? But and you see, do you see a reform scenario? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that to expound what what you said, uh, and, and I used the word authority a lot, and the questions of authority a lot, and just to make it clear, authority to me is the exact opposite of power. Power is dominance, as you say. Uh, authority is. Arnold tells me something, and whenever you tell me something, I listen to you because you're a smart person. All right. Um, that's authority. Um, yes, I think I think it's going to be a mix. I would like for it to be, and I think it probably will be, and I hate making predictions because I'm always wrong, but the, the, the last two uh, scenarios you presented, uh, I think they're... Uh, for authority to be regained, if we're not going to end up in that permanent disorganization fall of the Roman Empire mode, uh, we need we need massive reform, massive reform. Um, and it's not hard to see which way it has to go. It has to, government has to become flatter. It is now this gigantic pyramid that made perfect sense in the 20th century. And we're now 20 years into the 21st. So everybody's used to dealing with Amazon, where, I mean, I've been living from Amazon, I would probably have starved to death, and 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 be you know disrobed in, in in my own house if it weren't for Amazon. Every kind of necessity they can do. Amazon is a gigantic number of procedures and processes that are totally invisible to you. All you have to say is, "I want this thing," and it happens, right? Government is the exact opposite. Twentieth century uh, model is the opposite. Here are all these procedures, all these processes. Here are these forms. Here are these. You are. This is the, your account number. This is, and you're suddenly uh, presented with this distance between you and the people you have elected, who seem to be creating um, arbitrary hurdles between what they're supposed to do and what you want them to do. Insofar as government approaches Amazon, and there is no reason in the universe why that should not happen in many cases. Uh, not every part of government can do that. Um, I, I think you will have um, you know, both a reformed government, a, a government which many of its current functions and current institutions will be slimmed down and, and, and made faster and, and more agile, 
But I, I, I would be astonished if some new institutions didn't come in there and through the cracks and perform functions that, that, that government has been performing all along and just kind of replace those. Um, I, I, I wouldn't even want to even give it a for instance, but that, that usually when there is that kind of a change, new things happen in the way, I guess, that uh, new media has replaced newspapers. Could you see something similar in higher education, that there's some new way that it gets performed? Totally. I think all of, this is not just government. This is not just politics. I, I, I write about politics because I guess that's what I did at CIA and that's what I know. But this is, this is every institution that we have inherited from the 20th century is in a state of crisis when it regards to their authority. And none of them will regain any shred of authority with the public uh, until A, they acknowledge this, which many of them refuse to for some reason, and B, reform. And if they don't reform, then you have the opportunity of replacing them with something new. It's really interesting that you happen to bring up Amazon because to me, Amazon is almost a unique organization. It's not a 20th century organization with org charts and committees. I mean, you know, even I think other tech companies don't really operate the way Amazon does, where instead of, uh, you know, sort of, again, these, you know, hierarchies and information flowing up and down the chain uh, and all these, you know, efforts to organize it from the top and sort of be able to see it from the top. Instead of um, being told uh, you, you know, you have to communicate, you know, this department must communicate with that department and here are your rules for communication and here are all our procedures. It's like you just set up yourself as an independent entity that's two pizza model. Uh, You know, a team shouldn't be bigger than what could be fed on two pizzas. And then you just set up your interfaces so that you can operate completely independently. And all you tell other people is, this is how, I, how, you, how you interface with this module. I mean, imagine sort of higher education that way. You know, you wouldn't have like a Harvard or a Yale. You'd have like, a, you know, this segment of, the, of a biology department saying, here, this is how you interface with us. Here. You know, here's how you can get our information. Here's how you can put information into us. So, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're teaching 100 people on campus or 100,000 people around the world. Uh, you know, that, I mean, that, that's sort of how Amazon managed to scale. You could imagine maybe university. But that's, I can imagine it. It's, it's hard to, the here to there isn't so easy to, to picture. No, that's true, but I mean, it, way back in 1995, if you had told me there's going to be such a thing as Amazon or such a thing as Facebook, I would have said, I have no idea what you're talking about. So, right, it, 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 we cannot imagine, literally, we cannot imagine what might happen. I um, I have a friend uh, called Nicolas Collin, who is uh, an entrepreneur in France and one of the smartest people I know, and he talks about... Uh, quality at scale. And he gives the example of um, some French uh, minister complaining about the yellow vest people who are saying they want to be taxed less, but they want more benefits. They have to choose between one or the other. They can either have quality or they can have scale. Um, You you either buy yourself a, a, a fur coat and you can't scale that, or you get yourself something much less than that. Um, And he said, uh, that is exactly what uh, entrepreneurial uh, minds do. That's what Amazon does. It gives you quality at scale. There is absolutely no reason that everything in Amazon costs less and their service is better and they do it for hundreds of millions of people. If Amazon can do it, why can't the government do it? Why can't these other institutions like uh, colleges and so forth, why can't they do it? They can. Essentially, my belief, uh, part of the, the, the tragic aspect of where we are today is the elites that we have 
um, you know, the Yuval Levin idea that the institutions used to be formative. You went through an institution that they formed you, right? So Walter Cronkite was formed by CBS News to be a certain kind of news person. Today, it's performative. You kind of use these institutions as your platform to express yourself and, and to be seen being important and so forth. And, and, and I think these 20th century institutions are, are very comfortable for the elites. I think the tragic aspect is they don't want to change. They, they find whatever emerges at the other end of that disorganization, it's going to be very different and much more uncomfortable for the people on top, much more uncomfortable because we're going to be very close to them. We're going to be sitting right next to them and we're going to be saying, no, 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 that's wrong. And I think the elites look at that and they go, that's the last thing I want. Why did I climb this ladder, this pyramid, just to, to be in such a flat uh, institution? No, I want my old 20th century pyramid. And I think until that changes, the first thing that has to change is the elite mindset. And honestly, as I've said many times before, if it doesn't change, we need to change our elites. So, Martin, you, you made the point a moment ago that, that institutions are either going to have to reform or they're just going to be jettisoned by the wayside. Um, not asking you to make a prediction, but how do you see institutions that will be able to be reformed differing from those that are just going to be jettisoned? Is there something uh, within an institution that will allow it to renew itself? Uh, and not just be subject to the the kind of uh, you know, nihilistic tear it all down pressures. Yeah, that's a really really good question, and I am just dipping into that. I, I'm I'm talking to um, this other very smart person called Alicia Juarero, who is a, she's an expert on systems, right? Just systems and how they organize, how they disorganize. You know, there's the mathematics of this almost. Actually, there is, um, which I don't know by the way, and would would. If you put a gun to my head, that would be, I couldn't do it. Might as well shoot me. Um, but so I, the answer is I, I, I'm just beginning to learn about how this works uh, in terms of high level. Um, but from the sociopolitical perspective, I mean, it's pretty clear. The, the digital dispensation is about bottom up. So at some system has to exist where the government is, uh, fed information, and that's not just government, political institutions, say political parties, are fed information from below, from, it, from its community, and shapes its, its agenda, not just by saying, well, there's 10 of us here in this room, and we are the, the commissars of, of, of truth, and you people who are the rest of our community, what do you, you know, go out there and tell, tell this truth? No, 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 it's going to be like Reddit, or it's going to be like Wikipedia, some kind of mix between top and bottom, where there is a deep interaction between the people who form the community uh, in terms of setting the agenda for the community. So uh, I guess we need to speculate maybe about, again, where, where will this social truth come from? So if, you know, it just seems unlikely that the New York Times covers its role. Does Google step into that role, or is is there no such role? Um, and what are, you know, what are the what are the conditions uh, or the requirements for uh, for authority to reemerge? And uh, it's it, you know I I just keep coming back to the you you need systems that cannot be gamed in the same way that the current systems have been gamed. I think we've just gotten to the point where the current systems uh, are rewarding the wrong kind of behavior. Like you say, the performative uh, behavior and signaling in some sense. So I, so it, it, when it becomes so easy to signal uh, that um uh, that people who people can get into these positions of authority in academia, journalism, politics, without having uh, developed the the ability to really help society arrive at a, at, at social truth. Uh, so I keep thinking we need you know just sort of better systems for sorting out who gets. To be in a position of authority, or in a, you know, or who gets listened to? That might be the, the the simplest way to put it. Is we need a some new systems for deciding who gets listened to. And you point out that there's a lot of knowledge at the bottom that isn't breaking through. And I I, I see that I, you know, for a while I was just obsessively following the virus crisis stories, everything from you know what people were 
writing on medium to these research papers that were appearing all of a sudden and you could see often is not somebody who is completely outside the field but just a smart person would latch on to something and then you know a few weeks later maybe the cdc or some authority figure would say oh maybe there's something to that not even I mean, not because they read what this oddball wrote but because they finally figured it out for themselves and and three weeks in the sort of virus crisis time was a lot. I mean, it was, that was a big lag. And if it, if they had a system in place that would process, that could have gotten the uh, the outlier information to them sooner, uh, they could have you know been much more effective. So the their ability to shut out these voices at the bottom. Uh, is is a bug and not a feature for these people. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think the whole pandemic crisis is is a good example of, I won't say post-truth, but of, of our inability to get at the truth, okay? Um, because um, I think in part our expectations are, are unrealistic. And, and I would say one quality that I would want to have uh, in, in, the, in, in the reorganized system uh, would be what used to be called scientific modesty. In the olden days, scientists were supposed to be very modest about their claims because they knew that truth was an evolving thing. We, our ignorance is far more profound than it will always be. Human condition is, is mostly ignorance. What we know is a tiny little drop in, in, in the universal bucket. And so speaking from that, that modest perspective, um, it, 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 it's a little bit like the person that stands back from you and you tend to lean forward. The person who leans forward, which is what everybody did during the crisis, they said, I, I'm leaning forward and I'm telling you what's what. You tend to lean back. You kind, of, you kind of go like, well, maybe so, maybe not. And of course, when then you say things and change your mind and say the opposite three weeks later or whatever has happened with every authority that I can think of during the pandemic crisis, then the fact that you've been talking from such arrogance of, of, of authority becomes um, destructive. It becomes destructive of truth. In, in fact, like uh, about a week ago, I sort of assembled my personal post-mortem on the thing. I called it a virus crisis diary. And I got a, a few comments on it. And, and the comments were, he admits when he was wrong. And I thought, gee, that wasn't my central point. You know, it, 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 but it, it, I guess it just comes as such a surprise to people. Um, so it reminds me of something, I think this is something you've said, that, that these our current systems really select for confidence. That is, people who express their views with great confidence, and yet that's exactly the wrong person you want to select, at least in, in this kind of environment. So why, why is that? Why do we end up, how did we end up with that? How do we end up with something different? And, and if I could ask just to put a little nuance on that, is this a supply side issue or a demand side issue? Is it that scientists and experts are going out there and and they come out with no humility? Or is it that that's what people want to hear, that the demand has been for utter certainty for people and that anyone who expresses any doubt or, God forbid, later changes their mind about something uh, is viewed as having uh, been an error to begin with and everything else that they say can therefore be summarily dismissed? Yeah, I, I think, honestly, it's both. I think it's both. I think uh, our elites have been trained in that 20th century mode, which is I am an authority and you will listen. But the public wants that. The public, when you look at uh, public responses to crisis in general, to issues in general, they they don't want somebody who is hesitant and who is modest. They want to be told, I know I'm going to take care of you. Sit back. I'll do it. However, this is where our elites are failing us. I mean, after all, the elites should set the model. And I think there is a way of being modest and being persuasive. It hasn't been done yet, but it used to be done by scientists. It's not like it's just going to be invented out of, out of whole cloth. So, and and I, by the way, I, I this, this confidence, I haven't been quoting you on that, Arnold, and I had this, this conversation with, uh, it's a, um, it's a French MP and and, uh, and a British thinker called um, David Goodhart, brilliant guy. Um, and we were talking, we were doing one of these Zoom things, and they were talking about the difference between Trump and, and Macron. And I said, you know, okay, 
we select our, our leaders for confidence. Can you think probably the two, because how different are Trump and Macron? They are probably the two most confident men on the face of the earth. I mean, they, they share that trait 100%. Um, so the populist, the uh, more like the liberal establishmentarian, and still in all, they're, when you hear them talk, they are the voice of confidence and, and, and they, they tell you what's going to happen, even though they are as wrong as they are right. So and it's almost like we have, we've met the enemy and he is us. We want these super confident people. We don't want people who, like me, write say, well, I was right on this, wrong on that, right on this, wrong on that. Um, I mean, we want people like Trump is like if he ever admits he's wrong on something, I think the uh, the, the world will come to an end. <laughs> I mean, it just, uh, I don't know Macron's as well, but if he's got that same quality that's macron wanted a jupiterian presidency that's the way he's called it he wanted to be jupiter he wanted to be zeus um i mean you could macron if anybody can compete with trump when it comes to confidence it's going to be him it's, it's astonishing they think they're they're so different and in many different ways they're the same so yeah uh i i again i insist though uh the enemy is us the public it is not up to us in many ways to set elite standards it should be up to the elites to look at the situation truly a truly elite class a class that is excellent which is what elite is supposed to mean that is admirable that is the kind of person that you would want to be in some sense like like in the olden days people pointed to precedents and they were always the most admired and so forth um a class of true elites would realize that circumstances demand a different adaptation. The way to express authority today is not to stand on a great big rostrum with a seal of, you know, of some kind in front of it, encased in a suit, and make these confident utterances. Because you're going to be found out. I mean, you're going to be found out. So you're going to lose your authority immediately. Um, I think what you have to do is engage. You have to engage and say, well, this is what we think. And as you know, Arnold, the only way that we arrive at anything remotely like truth is but trial and error. There, there, there are no gigantic set of principles you can go to and say, well, this is where truth is. No, we, we, we go one step and that's the wrong place. We go the other way. Okay. And government is like that and has always been like that and ought to be portrayed as being like that. And I think a, an elite that we could respect as an authority would convey that. That is not an impossibility. That is just a, a function of very poor um, level of of, uh, of leadership in an elite class. Yeah, and I, I I I think that we maybe have lost some of that sense of you know truth as something you pursue in academia um, in academia, and I think that it kind of in some ways it's it starts there. If 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 people if if people going to Colleges and universities don't get this sense of pursuit of truth, and I like your point that look, we only know a drop. I mean, because you know, if you look at the history of science, it's a history of mistakes in some sense. You know, people had the wrong idea about chemistry, and I think even even I learned, you know, the wrong idea of really how atoms are constructed uh, or how they're organized, uh, but you know, th those, those things keep changing and we just, you know, uh, we're just unlearning mistakes over time. And the, just that, se that sense of uh, knowledge is something that's more, that's always provisional. Uh, it's, I, I just don't think that, that, that that's conveyed well enough on campus these days. Yeah. Or certainly not at all in our politics. Um, now, in my in my um, little essay for the bridge, I talk about the information sphere, which is my term for all all the sources of information, digital or not. Um, and I think we that's like the uh, Aegean stables that have to be cleaned out. I mean, I think I think there is um, there is there is um, 
a lot of pathology in the information sphere when it comes to how it deals with facts, how it deals with reality. I mean, their whole incident with Trump was to me, I mean, in a weird way as an analyst, I mean, it was a terrible thing to happen where these people are yelling at each other and lose track of what, what it was that they were arguing about in the first place, right? I mean, I think, I think we need to take certain measures to sort of detoxify the information sphere. I think um, part of that means um, looking at the news differently than we do. I think we tend to assume that, or let's put it this way, the news presents itself in the same manner that it did um, in the 20th century as, as the voice of authority. And there's this whole almost ideology built around it. Um, and, and I think we just need to demystify that. The news is just a source of information. They uh, will rise and fall according to whether they satisfy the needs of, of the public. Um, and, and, uh, and I don't even mean necessarily in, in the sense of political bias. I think part of what the news should do Sometime in August of 2016, uh, there was a, a report, it wasn't even an editorial, on the front page of the New York Times that said, when you have a candidate like Trump that is so dangerous, he will be covered in a different way. So I think the news have pretty much decided where they stand in, in politics. That's fine. I think that, that only follows a model that many other countries do where you can have news from a political perspective, but don't pretend to be objective. Don't pretend to be the ultimate um, sort of Olympian source of neutrality and so forth. I think uh, the um, social media, I mean, actually all the digital platforms, Google included, need to, need to detoxify as well. And in their case, um, I, I, I think the, the whole incident with Trump is a perfect example. I mean, should presidents be fact-checked? Well, honestly, from my own humble perspective, why not, right? Uh, are Trump to have been fact-checked? Again, from my humble perspective, why not? Well, has anybody else been fact-checked? No. So then you need to give reasons. I think uh, these, these uh, social media platforms live uh, by, and die by their algorithms. Uh, and uh, Trump's argument back to them, and it has some merit, is, well, you've never done this before, and it seems to be contrary to your own terms of service. So their algorithms and their rules are totally opaque to us. Much of our democratic uh, process happens on these platforms, the, dis the debate, the discussions, the yelling back and forth, and yet they shape information in ways that are completely and on principle uh, opaque to us. I think they need to learn to start giving reasons. If you're going to fact check the president, that's perfectly okay by me. Give a reason, give a reason, and then you're accountable for that reason. You have given an account for yourself. Yeah, well, the, you've, you've mentioned a word that I think is really important here. It's, it, it's accountability. Uh, if you think about the systems that work uh, for you know, creating social truth, uh, there are systems where there's um, I get this from David Brin, a science fiction writer. They're, they have competition and accountability. So uh, a market, for example, has competition. People go off and build their own businesses, but then they're ultimately accountable because if they don't satisfy customers, they, uh, they don't make a profit. Um, the legal system has competition and accountability. The, the, you know, the, the two sides go off by themselves, try to make their best case, and then ultimately gets resolved by the judge and the jury. I think the challenge with some of these, some areas of social truth, the ones that we're talking about, politics and journalism, is, you know, how do you create the accountability and resolution? The, the 20th century solution was to say that whatever the CBS said was right. They were the, they were the referee. They were not uh, one of the competitors in that sense. Now they've, they've become a competitor in this uh, they're running the race. They're not. Uh, they're not judging the race. And what kind of new system of accountability would emerge to resolve that, so that there is a social truth, and we're not just having different partisan private truths? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and I, I think honestly, what's going to happen? Well, I, again, let me stop myself from making a prediction. I think one possible way forward is. Um, the newspapers, the, the old traditional sources, the newspapers and the news broadcasts, uh, the 20th century news, are going to become what 
those things have been, for example, in France, which I know <clears throat> pretty well, always, which is the, 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 the uh, mouthpieces of certain political um, ideologies or perspectives. Uh, so in France, you have the, the two great newspapers are the Figaro, which is the, the conservative or the right, as they call themselves, and, and you have Le Monde, which is the left, and they make no bones about it. That's who they are. And I think that's going to happen. Interestingly, it is not an impossibility that the great social media platforms may become a lot more, because they, they're now the ones that have to compete for, for bodies. They're the ones that really are, they're the game. I mean, the, the news are on the margins now. They, they have the prestige, but they're on the margins, okay? Um, the social media platform, you're talking billions of people, um, may become more of the attempting, attempting to be anodyne and objective in the same old way that uh, Walter Cronkite might have, might have wanted to be. Um, but there's no uh, there there. There's no there. You know, there's no editorial page. There's no whatever. Like, well, you say it's totally opaque. It's it's algorithms. Right. Right. Um, so I, I I don't see them just sort of jumping into that same role. I, I you know maybe maybe certain what I see them doing is sort of elevating you know, some people at the margins that you, that you wouldn't have heard before at all. You, you can now find them. Uh, but there's, so there's this, there's, they, they, what I see them doing is facilitating lots of competition, way more competition than there was in the 20th century. But what I don't see is any, is that the centripetal force of the of coming back together and saying, okay, well, how do you compare these two these views of and arrive at some notion of you know i'll i'll, I'll go with truth you know so how how do you get at any kind of social truth out of all that competition how how does that sort out yeah that that that's a that's a good question um i, I think the online world is implicitly i mean the, to me the the ideal of the online world is reddit in Reddit, everybody votes on the story, and the story rises uh, according to what people think of it in these little subreddit communities. So you get a lot of strange things that just by their very strangeness bubble up to the top, right? Um, but in the end, I think, uh, I think what's broken now is that the top layer, the people who used to be the authorities, have not acknowledged that the world has changed, that there is competition. They feel like they're still the authorities, okay? Um, and... and uh, the dysfunction happens where you have this world where everything bubbles from the from the bottom up and you have to look at it as for what it is, is, you know, those who can persuade you that something is interesting and, and persuasive and, and uh, for whatever reason, you vote up to the top and there ought to be then the experts, talk, you know, engaging and saying, yes, but on the other hand, that silly, that silly story you just voted up is fun, but not really very accurate. They will not engage. They just speak ex-cathedra, they speak from authority. And, and of course, when they do so, they're found out that what, what that enormous churning tide of, of, of uh, information at, at the bottom of the digital world does is it just finds every mistake you have made. It exposes every time you say one thing and then the next they say another. It puts it all out there so that if you are an authority, you have to live with that. You can't pretend that you didn't do that. And I think Again, uh, I mean, I hate to keep barking on the on, on the same note, but but it's 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 the elites. They have to engage. They have to engage. We have to find a way. I think for me, in the end, this is a, what you might call in a company a personnel question, uh, not an issue question. Is we have to somehow find a way to promote people to elite positions, and by that I mean by giving them our attention, by giving them our our you know our entertainment dollars, whatever you want to call it. Um, that engage with with this churning digital mass. And between the two, I think you could become, I mean, it's always going to be, as I said before, it's always going to be mostly ignorance. And and human beings don't like ignorance and tend to fill ignorance with a lot of hooey, right? A lot of stuff. Uh, and, and, and that's always mostly going to be there, always mostly has been there. And that is not going to change. But when things matter, um, Maybe we can get an elite class that engages, and not by saying you're wrong because I'm an authority, but by saying, well, let me let's talk about it. Let, let's let's debate this issue. Let's let's say this is the facts I've got. These are the strange things you're saying. How do the two mesh up? 
Well, it's, it's interesting you mentioned Reddit. I mean, places like that, I, I think of as, you know, you have sort of reputation systems. And, you know, in yeah. some sense, Google PageRank is a reputation yeah. Oh, system. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and so you've got all these these things online and maybe ultimately some of these reputation systems will work in the sense that uh, enough people say, wow, if you got to the top of this reputation system online, if, if your argument made it to the top, uh, it must be a pretty good argument. If your scientific theory made it to the top, it must be a pretty good scientific theory. Yeah, no, I think, or at least it's, it is worthy of engagement, right? So there it is. You, you have, you, you've made, you made it to the top is worthy of engagement instead of having these two separate worlds in which the people who hold uh, all the um, uh, places of, of uh, promotion and so forth in the scientific establishment live in one world. And then the, the, the big digital mass lives in an entirely different world. And there it's like they're at war with one another. Um, I think, and I think uh, my hope, I keep hoping uh, it, this is in part generational. I think those of us, I mean, it's remarkable to me um, as a baby boomer, what a tremendous hold the baby boomers still have on modern society. I mean, it's astounding to me, right? Uh, and, and um, you know, I, I've gotten more fond of my generation as, as I've grown older. I never thought much of us to, to begin with. Um, I'm looking at the young people now <laughs> and I have the old persons wonder, I said, what's gonna happen next? But the one thing young people do have is they know that they can't just stand up in front of a, of a TV camera say, and say, this is so, that this is the way it was on you know, May such and such 2020. Because why? Because I'm Walter Cronkite and I'm saying so. That isn't going to happen. So partly generational, partly it's up to us. I mean, if we're taking a set as correct, uh, the elites who determine authority or try to determine authority have a very close relationship to the public that listens to them. We, in a sense, select them. And I think that's very true. I think that's a great place to leave things. So Martin Gurry, Arnold Kling, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for listening to the Discourse Magazine podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And please feel free to share this podcast with like-minded friends and to leave us a review. We're always happy to hear from you. Finally, check out Discourse Magazine, which is available free online at www.discoursemagazine.com. Thanks again, and see you next time.